I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to video the moving pictures. <laughs> These accents the same way we did Scarface? Do you think that's a good consistency? <laughs> it's a real no, can... horror show. <laughs> no, you can make fun of British people all you want. Oh, that's right. This is just how they talk. Yeah, what if I'm worried about my ability to be accurate? <laughs> um, but you can be a corny white guy in a golf course. Uh, yeah, great. Perfect. Uh, four, four. Yeah, what, what is this? Where we love to watch? Horror movie podcast. Um... <laughs> We pick a theme. For a second, we sound like a very old and tired movie podcast. A movie podcast, maybe in dog years, a little bit past its prime, and you're starting to wonder, like, it's getting cataracts. Is it might be time to have a very sad conversation about this podcast? Uh, but no, we're just it, it forgot what I was doing mid sentence. Uh, but we're, we're a movie podcast. Pick a theme. Uh, we do movies uh, over the course of a month around that theme, and if we remember, we. Compare and contrast. We're in our seventh week of our double summer uh, month theme where we are covering dorm room movies or dorm, sorry, dorm room poster movies. And it's actually like that's the name of it. Our initial idea was to cover movies that Peter and I had generally a fondness for at some point. At about the time we were putting up posters on our dorm rooms, college, high school, and that generally movies that also have a place on the IMDb's top 50 and are kind of film bro movies and stuff like that. And kind of either reassessing on movies that we may have been obsessed with at one point because they were our first kind of exposure to a certain type of cinema uh and uh and how we felt about them now revisiting a couple favorites like goodfellas or shawshank or uh next week and for our grand finale really just talking about something that a lot of uh, people at a certain age like that i didn't care for when i was of a certain age and i don't care for now which is the boondock saints uh this one is i think one of the stickier movies we're going to cover um i hadn't revisited in a long time it's a clockwork orange by stanley kubrick it's our first kubrick movie um, I had said when we did our Joe Dante month that even though I had always considered Stanley Kubrick my favorite director, that Joe Dante, uh, Joe Dante's aesthetic was the one that I appreciated more than any film director. There was his, the qualities to his movies, the, uh, anarchy and, and the comedy and everything else. And the, the designs was my favorite, but I, I, you know, I, I kind of feel like Stanley Kubrick is a very, um, eye-rolling answer for favorite director but he has directed like if i'm just basing it on like who's directed the most on my favorite my favorite movie list it'd probably be him he has movies mathematical favorite yeah mathematical favorite like he has movies in different genres he didn't make that many movies but like almost all of his movies i absolutely love whether it like that i would consider some of my absolute favorites whether it's 2001, whether it's Dr. Strangelove, whether it's The Killing or Passive Glory or 
Full Metal Jacket or, you know, on and on and on. The Shining was probably one of my, if not my favorite horror movie in the top three favorite horror movies. Like, he just made consistently amazing movies for much of his life, spanning genres, spanning decades. And part of the reason I think it's a really pat answer for who's your favorite director is that Stanley Kubrick's movies are also very popular. They they were popular when they came out. They're popular now. We're going to talk about this movie, which made like fucking $800 million in the worldwide box office. Something completely insane for what kind of movie it is. Like, these are almost like uh, art house pictures that reached huge, audi- huge audiences, had a ton of uh, a c- critical acclaim, but are also the type of movies that you see when you're in high school and you're like, I watched this movie and I know what a director does. Like, this did not seem generic. Like, this clearly was a was a visual uh, a, a visual feast that I got to experience. And then I, you see another movie by him and you recognize all those same, like... This was probably one of his first movies I saw. And I was very interested in seeing it because everything I, I had heard about it seemed really dangerous. But it's also the one that I've revisited the least in the last 15 years. I have seen... 2001, so much. I've seen The Shining probably more than any of his movies. I, Dr. Strangelove, every few years I pop in or something like that. This one I watched a lot when I first saw it because it, it felt so unique and amazing. Um, and then I just haven't really revisited. And part of it was that I wasn't sure if I had, like, the stomach's not the right word. But it's like, man, I've really seen that. And it's kind of a brutal movie in a lot of different ways. And it's two and a half hours. It's like, you know, you're kind of committing yourself to an experience. And as I get older and I want to watch more new movies or return to comforting favorites and stuff like that, it's like, how often I'm not showing it to my kids, you know, like where, where I'm not, I'm not my, my, if I'm picking a movie for me and my wife, I'm not like, you know, you've never seen Clockwork Orange. You want to have a kind of a really weird night? <laughs> like, um, so it's, 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 I, that's kind of the reason. And I wasn't sure. Um, and I'll, I know I've been talking a lot to kind of frame this up. You know, one of the things that's interesting about looking at people that we follow in Letterboxd is this has a, you know, this is starting to get that movie that was a five-star movie when you were in college or 20 years ago, and it's starting to have, like, a lot of three, three and a half stars from people that I respect. And and I kind of want to talk about some of the new consensus take on this movie, but it feels like it's like, yeah, it's edgy, it's edgelord stuff. It is, I saw one review that called it, the 1970s version of the Joker, which is definitely an idea I want to come back to. And so before I watched it this time, I read the book for the first time. We can talk. I want to talk a little bit about that. But I ended up still really like appreciating it and 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 loving it is kind of a weird word to apply to a movie that like a lot of it you don't enjoy watching because that's the point. But like from the directing to the acting to the themes to the the story it's telling, like, I I still came away very overall pro A Clockwork Orange, but that seems to be a less and less popular take among uh, even newer Kub- Kubrick fans. So, Peter, what what are your thoughts? When's the last time you've seen it before this? What was what was it like revisiting it this time, generally? Uh, <clears throat> to take, like, a brief step back, like, when we were trying to pick what movies fit for this summer we've talked a lot about this our selection because there's a lot of movies that could fit in it right um 
And we talked about uh, how, like, uh, you know, there's certain movies we think are well covered already, so it's we kind of eliminated them. Like, we eliminated some Tarantino movies for that reason. Um, there's some movies that, like, we think, like, you know, like... I don't actually have anything like interesting to say about that or like, you know, that doesn't actually sound like a good time Um, or like, hey, that's just so popular. Like people have seen it. People know what that is. I roughly agree with them on what that is. (laughs) Why talk about it? Um, We're not trying to like we're not trying to uh, if if we were that influential, we're not trying to uh, redirect a cultural conversation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. but uh, this was a movie that I was immediately like, well, we have to cover it because this and The Shining are the two most we love to watch Kubrick movies, right? Yeah, um, yeah, we definitely have to do The Shining at some point. This one, The Shining, just because it rules, and we cover awesome horror movies, yeah. and um, it's a movie people are obsessed with. We could I, we I could make it a legacy sequel too, because Doctor Sleep rules too. So I would love to yeah. love to do that. Yeah. Um. So we. Uh, but this is a movie I immediately wanted to talk about, and now we're sitting here, and I've watched the movie twice for the show, mm-hmm. and I have so little, sorry, I I feel like I have n- a very minimal understanding of what the movie is about. Interesting. Whereas when I, when I read the book, and I watched the movie a million times when I was mm-hmm. in, I read the book when I was in high school, and then I mo- watched the movie a million times between high school and college. I loved this movie. Yeah. I... I dressed as a droog for a Halloween and like went out with my friends. Like that was it was uh, no crimes committed. Oh, actually, sorry, one crime: underage drinking. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, it's only a crime but... in America, Peter. You have a very European <laughs> sensibility about you, of which I mean, you look very German. Yeah. Whoops. Um, yeah, I'm German, so genetically, I'm supposed to have. Uh, I'm not saying it's three. three... Three pints of lager a, a morning. I'm not saying it's a crime to look German. I'm just saying a lot of people who look German committed quite a lot of crimes. Yeah, I don't know if I would do the Drug thing again. Yeah. We'll talk about that Sounds in a moment. Like... But um, but the point is, a movie that like I loved for a long period of my life, I thought I had a good grasp on it. Watching it twice, I think I understand what's being said in this movie mm-hmm. less than ever before. That's interesting. interesting. It's an interesting thing about this movie. I think like I think like it was a movie that like it got immediately bashed by critics. Critics Pauline Kael t- called it like a a, um, a celebration of violence, and then it was desensitizing people to violence. Then it was like a horrific movie, right? Yeah, Part of the reason that, that was Roger Ebert's take as well. Not did get a lot of other critical acclaim, but I think our two generational holdovers from that critical batch like hated this movie. But obviously, like it was very well reviewed generally. Y- yeah, but it it. Uh... Part of the but part of the reason he pulled it out is he was getting a lot of like cultural criticism about yeah. like is this is this movie going to um is this movie going to make kids more violent? There was some some crimes that were roughly um, associated with the movie later. We can talk about yeah. all that. The point the point is that like um this is a movie that I think like people rushed in to like make their decisions about or like make their their determination about what it's about, and then. I watched it once and I was like, I think I've got a, a grasp on this. And I was like, I'm going to watch it again. I've got, we've got an extra week. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now I feel like I know less about Clocker Quartz than I did the first time. It is a very complex movie that on its surface, you could very easily just be like, it's a movie of cool aesthetic touches. And it's an all style, no substance, cool aesthetic touches 
and some British comedy and some mm-hmm. horrific violence, and you get in, you get out, and uh, at the end of the movie, there's an ironic twist ending. Like, see, you could very easily take it from that, and then you can also yeah. go the route I did, which is like, why is this line in the movie? If Kubrick put this line in the movie, he's trying to redirect the theme. And, like, you go a little batty. <laughs> so what's funny is, and maybe this is because I read the book, and then I read a lot of, um, a lot of stuff about what Anthony Burgess intended for the movie, what Stanley Kubrick intended to the movie, the way they started out as really close friends, and then had a Burgess specifically had a lot of resentment towards Kubrick later on. Um, I think Kubrick is the madman meme where he's like, I didn't think about you at all. But but Burgess did because this movie or this book ended up always becoming his most popular novel. It was also one of his first novels and kind of overshadowed the rest of his career. While obviously Kubrick very famously like moves on to the point that like he, this is kind of a famous story, but like him and Malcolm McDowell, while they're making these movies were very close. He would call Malcolm McDowell all the time in the middle of the night, talk about things, sometimes just say, Hey, I've been listening to a plane uh, to tower communication, never fly and hang up and like just talk to him all the time, constantly. And the second was the movie was over, he never talked to him again, and that really hurt Malcolm McDowell's feelings. But he stayed. Malcolm McDowell stayed friends with Kubrick's wife, Catherine, for the next twenty five years. He never talked to Stanley Kubrick again. Like it is, it's like kind of insane how much he would just be like, "That movie's done. I have moved on from those people in that movie, and I'm going into my next thing." And that's like Kubrick. Obviously, there's a lot of like stories about him and Shelley Duvall. A lot of the actresses who were um, in rape scenes in this movie spoke highly of how respectful he was and and handled it. But he definitely has a. Definitely, there's a lot of stories about that he could be a monster and a terrorizer on set for what he would call the sake of art. Art, but even if you're abusing someone for the sake of art, that's still abuse. I don't know if you know that. Check that. that check that out. Um, but <laughs> like the he he did kind of Kubrick moved on a little bit from Burgess. Well, and I I want to talk about that a little bit. I actually feel like when I was a kid, I thought this was almost like or younger. I I probably didn't even think too much of what the theme was. It was like a movie about a bad guy in a weirdo future like Brazil or something like that who was committing these crimes. And, you know, then he was like, like, I I probably could have, like, said something about it, but I was more obsessed with the idea of this kind of, like, dystopian future that still kind of mirrored our present and, like, the costume design and stuff like that. And now that I'm older and I've watched this movie and read the book and read a lot of the interpretations that, you know, interviews that Kubrick gave, interviews that Burgess gave, I feel like I, like, have, like, three different takes on this movie. So it's a little bit interesting just because I... You you said when you used to watch this all the time, you probably would have had, like, so much to say about the themes. And I don't think I would have back then. I really don't. I'm trying to think of, like, what... 18 year old Aaron thought about what this movie meant besides just a just a fucking weird cool uh visual treat of like this darker material that I wasn't used to seeing uh and obviously I I was already a Malcolm McDowell fan because of Star Trek Generations and that's where I came into Malcolm McDowell and the Wing Commander video game so like I was you know I loved him and seeing this performance was great but now I feel like I have so much to talk about with the themes uh and 
Uh, mainly because, like, I think there's a there's a there's a theme that Burgess tried to do in his original movie. There's a theme that Kubrick tried to do in his movie, and I think there's a third theme that I really like. I I don't think it has anything to do with authorial intent necessarily, but like seeing it from the prism of a forty year old and the society we live in, I think it also has a lot to offer around a cultural commentary about fear of youth and stuff like that. That I think is somewhat present in the novel, only kind of present in the movie, but I think has a lot to resonate there uh, in a way that definitely wouldn't have hit me when I was eighteen. I don't know, Peter, where do you want to begin? Because I got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's start with a little bit of the basic background. We, right? Let's start with the book. Um, start with the book. Uh, so you read the during book. The London, a long during time the ago. London blackout in 1944, um, Anthony Burgess's wife <clears throat> at the time was attacked, mugged, uh, in some way sexually uh, assaulted uh, by a group of uh, American soldiers uh, that were deserters from uh, base. Um, and, uh, it, uh, she was pregnant at the time. She lost the baby. Um, her mental state deteriorated at that point, And it sounds like she basically like drank herself to death after that. Um, he remarried later. Um, but this, this event stuck in his memory because it was like one, it, it is the thing in your life that like is unfortunately it's the, it's a story about his wife that is unfortunately a story about him and another man. <laughs> Right. It's unfortunately a story about how Anthony Burgess internalized this assault. And it's unfortunately a story about how Stanley Kubrick internalized the book about this internalization of the, the assault. We don't have a lot of her perspective here, which I think informs both the book and the movie, by the way. Um, the the book was written um, based on a few other a few other pieces. Uh, Burgess had uh, criticisms of American media. Um, he thought that American media inspired people to be more violent and degraded. Um, he saw in the youth, uh, particularly the youth culture of, of Britain and London, saw a sort of degrading of the language um, that like th- there was a, a the, the English language was falling apart in front of him. And then also he had some there's some Red Scare stuff in here, too, where yep. um, yeah. he visited he visited Leningrad. And uh, he was uh, very taken aback. He picked up some of the language he was very taken aback by. Uh, sort of like the idea of Russian influence yeah. on the on the world. This is not a 1984 thing mm. where like where like it's supposed to be about a society that's internalized some form of socialism or totalitarian socialism. It's not. No, it's not that. It's, I connected it to that flung. as a kid, though. Even though I bought this book and never read it when I was in college. I did read Brave New World Fahrenheit 451 in 1984 when I was in high school. And so, like, this felt like that. Or Brazil, a movie that we talked about how much I loved when I was in high school. That kind of, like, dystopian, weird government, bureaucratic, alt-future type thing was definitely, like, a a type of uh, sci-fi genre that I was, was very appealing to. Same, same. I watched all those movies when I was in, uh, there was even a point in my life where I considered Equilibrium a good movie. That's how much I was into this particular genre. I was, I was, Um, I was afflicted the same way. (laughs) (laughs) And I stopped taking. That's, uh, that's like, that's like the first thing in an intervention to find a new genre where someone goes, Peter. You bought Equilibrium on Blu-ray. Like, <laughs> it's time to look at other options. Like, I, 
<laughs> I just wanted the commentary and the feature. <laughs> Uh, I don't think the movie is as bad as its reputation, but it is it's certainly not a good movie and not a particular work of genius. Um, but um, I loved those movies as a kid. I watched as many of them as I could. Honestly, I think we talked about this in the Brazil episode. Honestly, I came to Brazil less from a Python standpoint than somebody who just loved these types. Oh, of movies. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I was a big Python fan, but... I probably couldn't have given two shits that Terry Gilliam directed it. I wanted to see yeah. what's the and in the same way we talked about Brazil had a, this quality of like I didn't know you could do that with movies yeah. like let alone that movies that were like older than I was by like I didn't know movies that were coming out when I was in 1999 could do that let alone a movie in 1985 came yes. out like this or a movie in 1971 how did they allow them to do this this is insane how did this exist why don't people talk about this all the time like that that was where I came to both Brazil and Clockwork Orange. I yeah, but I I it's not quite that thing. And actually, while we're here, like this is like perhaps one of the most believable future sci-fi movies I've ever seen, um, because it doesn't just lean in on like miserableism across the board. There's like um, people that have very hard hard stuck li- lives. Society seems to be falling apart on the exterior. Every exterior, basically, in the entire world looks like shit. Yeah. Um, but the interior spaces are, are lovely and decorated, and people have bought their brand new furniture, and the um, the record store is beautiful and lively and full of music because, you know, they, the, the capitalist system wants them to continue to consume. Yeah. Like, there, there's... Um, but, like, on the streets, everything is falling apart. There's trash everywhere. Yeah. The lobby of, of Alex's uh, a, a home is completely destroyed. And you get the sense that, like, he maybe did one or two of these. But, like, they're off doing way worse crimes than petty vandalism. They're, there's just general sense that, like, uh, the, the, the system is falling apart and people are just kind of keep stitching it together. Well, what's things. interesting is, like, that is a flip for the book. Like, the book actually shows a very hyper-competent government that doesn't care enough to do anything about this. And you're right. The movie really gives this sense of, like, a totally ineffectual, weak government that is falling apart in the seams and doesn't have the ability to, you know, quote-unquote, keep the streets safe at night or to stop just literally roving gangs from running. So it, it really is, like, tackling a very different perspective, even though... I was also amazed. I don't know how factually accurate this is because I don't know how you can measure this, but this is noted as the most uh, the, the the Kubrick movie that's closest to the novel, and it is very close. Like I, uh, you know, it it uh, it actually helped. I'm so glad that I didn't read the novel first. I'm kind of surprised. Like, and and I'm sure there's 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 complicated novels. Like I don't know how I would have read this without having seen the movie because I had to. Every single line that Alex says, I needed to like read out loud in my head as Malcolm McDowell, or else I feel like I would not have been able to to focus on the words because it is really uh, challenging from a language. They call it a, n- n- a nadset slang, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is the the kind of that's where he took it. Like you said, he was in Russia and he heard this kind of like combination of like. Uh, a bunch of different languages used for the slang, and that was kind of, kind of his idea. Um, it is interesting though. Like, let's get to the book a, a little bit more too. So you mentioned why Burgess, like, what, why it thought of this dystopia. Burgess is also a very devout Catholic. 
Uh, that's going to come up later with his divide with Kubrick. He's a very devout Catholic. And I actually think, like, like I was raised Catholic. I think there's a version of Catholicism that is philosophically interesting and not damaging to society as a whole. I think there's a lot of, like, good charity that comes from that and good, like, forgiveness and, like, you know, whether I believe the religion part is necessary, I think there's a lot maybe not in the like the Vatican teachings of like you need to believe this that and other thing but there's a lot there's a history of charity within the within um the horrors of the Catholic Church that is something to sometimes be admired and reading about Burgess he had this idea of like a society that needed to better like if God really gave people the concept of free will what does that mean and what is forgiveness of crimes no matter how brutal or terrifying or everything else what does that mean as a society to really try to humanize people, recognize mistakes, and to try to forgive them within a, within and giving them the free will and the ability to move on from those mistakes? And that's actually a key point to a part of this book that was missing for a long time. So uh, famously, this book had 21 chapters. Spoilers for the whole thing. Uh, at the end of the of of the chapter twenty of the book, um, after Alex has gone through this procedure to uh, remove violence by basically Pavlovian tricking him into equating uh, violence and sex and all these other things with like uh, being sick and throwing up, he overcomes the conditioning. We'll talk about the the circumstances, and he is. You know, he's starting to picture violence while having more and more support from the government uh, because of what they had done to him. And the last line of that chapter and the last line of the movie is, oh, I was cured. All right. Like it is a you can't fix broken. Chapter 21 of the book is about Alex just growing out of it. <laughs> like you have the whole book that's like in line with the movie and he meets one of his other friends, and his other friend now is married. And he's like, maybe it's time for me to start growing up and to get a wife as well. And, like, <laughs> that's chapter 21. And the American publisher of Clockwork Orange said, this doesn't make any goddamn sense whatsoever with the rest of the book. We're taking out the chapter. Kubrick, when he first read the book, only read it up to that chapter 20. Before he – one thing people think is like he didn't know that chapter exists. No, he was talking to Anthony Burgess a lot and getting his perspective. Kubrick was known to be very thorough in his like – in how he created a script. And this was actually his first sole credit for a script as well. Um, Burgess showed him that chapter. He didn't know it existed before that. And he had the same reaction like this doesn't fit at all with your book. That's not the story I'm interested in telling. And as someone who read it. I agree. It makes no sense. It is bizarre. It does make sense if you know why Burgess wrote his book, because it's that idea that, like, you know, society tried to take away this person's free will, but people aren't inherently monsters, and they can become good people through just recognizing that there's goodness in other human beings, uh, like the friends, and, like, to, to go... Man, having a wife and some kids would be not too bad someday. And like that there's an inherent desire of human beings to to do those things. And so like yeah. that makes sense if you're a devout Catholic. 
and you're, that's the story you're telling. I think the idea of that concept of free will and what how society forgives our worst crimes is an interesting topic to explore. Makes a lot of sense. It came from a Catholic, um, uh, but but that is kind of where the book came from from a from a story perspective. Yeah, yeah, and and the Catholic perspective versus um, Kubrick, who was a New Yorker. Um, who is Jewish, but secular Jewish, um, by all accounts sounds like, especially, you know, those, those midnight calls to Stephen King also happened. Right. And it sounds like by all accounts, he was not a believer in the afterlife and, um, very, very much not. So he, yeah, you're, he, 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 but yeah, the, the core tenets of, of, of Christianity obviously did not apply to him. Um, but also, like, any sort of, like, hybridization of, you know, modern spiritualism in the 70s and, um, you know, Jewish belief would also not have applied to yeah. his belief set. He was he was viewing things as – he was viewing things from social satire perspective. Yep. And what's funny, and though, is that what, because really he quickly, decided to adapt the book from this perspective – like it does reflect both what Kubrick thinks is bullshit in the book, and also it does reflect in Anthony Burgess. Like the ending is about the story of like a man who can't let go of of vengeance. Yeah. Right. And then, um, despite his his political beliefs, he he tries to enact uh, personal vengeance on Alex. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the movie, he's like, "Yeah, you can't." you can't break free will it's a gift from god yeah. like <laughs> um, yeah that's, that's very very catholic well and 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 still kind of ends up in the same place too weirdly right this is actually more explicit in the movie like i think kubrick has a darker version of what makes people quote unquote better for society none of alex's impulses are gone by the end of the movie he hasn't grown out of them but he is essentially being bribed through a job and a salary to stop going on the street and killing people theoretically. Like now we don't know what happens after that, but it, you know, as the kind of social satire and about, uh, uh, you know, about being about a society who is so ineffectual, it has nothing for these people to do. And so they do this. It has no way to support an infrastructure or society that like prevents these sort of things. All their cops are brutal and corrupt. Like it is, it is essentially keeping the upper class safe. Even if that's not like explicitly underlined, there's more than enough text in the movie that supports that while they let, you know, everyone else suffer. And the way they functionally stop Alex from committing crimes, or at least assuming that he'll stop committing crimes is like, Hey, what if you had enough money and a job and you don't have to worry about all that stuff? Like, <laughs> you know, that, that is its own, like, uh, how you, how you get people out from like, Hey, the most exciting thing in my life is when I get to commit absolutely brutal crimes because we have no education system to, to look of. Our parents are so impoverished and busy working. They have no way to support or look after us or teach us values. And the criminal justice system is just as corrupt and brutal as we are. Like, I mean, that is the... That that is the the Kubrickian point in this movie. Like you know, uh, we have no way to really support the society and and a youth that is looking for work. And you know, this is also coming like you know the '60s were obviously a 
a big part of social revolution in the 70s. There was a lot of economic strife and challenges and wars and stuff like that. And it's like, how do you how do you how do you give the idea that the future is better for the for kids? And like this is a society that has functionally said, how about if we just ignore them and hope every you know, they're creating their own little Lord of the Fly universe on the streets <laughs> every night while they, you know, stay mostly protected uh in their in their homes and so like that that's the kubrickian point is that yeah. yeah and it is almost like not to be too uh tiktok but like it is almost very boomer the ending the secret what is it 22nd chapter yeah um, the 21st 22nd yeah. 21st chapter it is that's almost a a very boomer thing which is that alex you know grew up during a time of social upheaval and strife and revolution um and then um, what ended up, you know, was ultimately a very selfish person who was just taking drugs all the time. Yeah. And then at the end of it, he's like, you know, actually, I do kind of get being like a bourgeois pig. Yeah. Like, I actually, I do kind of get that. That kind of makes sense. The yeah. way I, 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 the ending makes sense to me from like that, per, that the, uh, the, the, the novel ending makes sense to me from that perspective. Yeah. Um, I think that the... The, the the Kubrickian perspective though is is very sound with me, though it gets very interesting when you try and make it all fit together. Yeah, because this is not a movie of one message. No, right? This is a movie of like multiple threads coming together because <clears throat> Kubrick needs to have an underlying plot. The plot is written by Anthony Burgess, who had one set of motivations. Yeah. Kubrick had his own set of motivations that he tweaks the movie uh, through to get to. Um, some of them are aesthetic, some of them are thematic, right? Um, the aesthetic thing that I think is really interesting is this movie is like obviously super, like the aesthetic of the movie is super influential, yeah. right? Literally 20 years later on The Simpsons, Bart Simpson would dress as a droog. Yeah. And then 40 years later... Um, I would be going out with my friends as droogs on Halloween night and yeah. my girlfriend would put eyeshadow on to paint the little yeah. star pattern under my eye yeah. before we went to a concert. And people at the concert complimented me about how good I looked in yeah. the in the outfit, Yeah, right? People at 20, 21 or 20 recognized the aesthetics of this movie yeah. in 2010 or whatever the fuck year it was. Yeah, All of that. Um, this movie is obviously like, you know, like it's, it's almost like the countercultural punk movement, like mirrored in a weird way, but also on the dark side of this, like Alex's little crew does have with the romper stomper boots, the bowler hat, all that white, um, the canes and chains and knives, like they have the appearance of a white supremacist gang in England in that exact same period, right? Like. The aesthetic went off in it like in in nice ways towards like rave culture and like <clears throat> sort of like you know more more um like people wearing jumpers and people wearing like more like you know like a, a more workout wear kind of kind of um um trends and people having cool Halloween costumes and then it also went off in a different direction which is like it literally mirrors like what white supremacists would wear through the punk movement suspenders big combat boots a cup, mm -hmm. like, like sporting pants. I think they're like jockey pants or, or fencer's yeah. pants. There's yeah. some sort of sporting pants. I, I, I'm not sure. No. Um, some sort of rich 
bourgeoisie <laughs> uh, sporting pants. Yeah, I think that's right. But yeah, so like that, like the the aesthetics are, are one thing, right? Like they kind of do help mirror like what was going on in the '60s, going to the '70s. The movie I still think looks really cool because it doesn't try too hard to be sci-fi. All the interior spaces are like cool and, and unique and colorful. The exteriors are these brutalist architecture, right? Like London trying to build and build and build and build in the post-war, and then we ended up with a lot of very ugly buildings and so there's some beautiful brutalist architecture it's just at the time people were like this is a, a degradation of society like we're not building anything beautiful anymore i do think though like so the, the funny thing about this being maybe my first kubrick is that you get the sense if this is like your first exposure to kubrick i think you think of him as some sort of like provocateur in a way that like Yes, he made a movie out of Lolita. <laughs> a rather tame, somewhat 1960s version of Lolita. Um, like, he wasn't really... Like, his when this movie, you know, came out, like, his movie right before this was G-rated. The movie, which is 2001. The movie before that was, like, PG. He made fucking Spartacus. He made... Pass- these are not, like... These are not, like, this is a person who is constantly doing, like, X and R-rated and incredibly violent violent and you know uh movies with tons of nudity rape and murder and all that kind of stuff he really didn't do a lot of that and he was actually someone who was very concerned about that you know for all the like claims about censorship and all the attempted bans and all the people who spoke out against how horrible this movie was as you mentioned there was two people there's two crimes in England that directly referenced this movie, someone beating up someone while singing, singing in the rain. And like, so he pulled it from England. He voluntarily was like, hey, whatever's going on there. This, and the, 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 the kind of white supremacist outfit correlation, he's like, okay, this is not the right time for this movie here. And it was unavailable legally in the, in the UK from 1973 till 2000 after his death. He basically was like, no. Yeah, Britain's not ready for a small theater for for just for showing it while he was still alive. But that sometimes I think people think that was a censorship thing. He pulled it voluntarily out of theaters because he's like, I like this. It's not a video nasty thing. No, and he kept editing it down. It's it it, it, when it was originally released, it was released at an X rating, and he kept taking out violence or some of the more horrific image. Uh, and he eventually even because it you know back then movies just stayed move a movie that was this popular was in theaters for like years, so like he eventually re-released it as an R-rated movie in 1972, like a year after it came out while it was still in theaters because he was trying to like cut back some of the more brutal image while not trying to lose the brutal message that his film was doing. So like when I first saw this, I definitely had a specific image of Kubrick, and then as you go watch his whole filmography like again he's not without provocation in a lot of areas but like you know barry linden is not like you know like it's probably like this and eyes wide shut which is like and a full metal jacket which is like the extreme um uh, and i guess a little bit the shining the extremeness of of kubrick and the rest of his movies are very like i could show that to my kids they might not like it but like it's fine i saw the shining as a kid and the shining has like one explicitly sexual sequence, or not explicitly sexual, I'll say one sexual sequence. It's a naked woman walks up and makes out with Jack Nicholson. Yeah. And then there's the axe killing. There's the elevator of blood, which is like yeah. debatably violent. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, and then and then and then some zombie or you know zombies, some ghosts with like with like head wounds and such. But like the the movie is like the movie is remarkably tame by horror movie standards. It's entirely an atmosphere picture, right? Yeah. The reason people get obsessed with the movie is because it's like it's like a it's like a mesmerizing piece of work. People aren't obsessed with the movie because they're like, you gotta see the Halloran kill. <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean, Clockwork Orange. It's it's in the the novel, right? Like, I mean, he's not he's adapting a novel and he's doing a good job of it, but he's not like like I'm not saying he should have or shouldn't have been, but like the fact is, he was as concerned with the violence and the brutality on screen as anyone and was constantly trying to pull back from that. Um, and that's actually where he had the falling out later on with Anthony Burgess because Kubrick wasn't religious, as you said, and he definitely didn't care that it was being condemned by churches and stuff like that. Like he had his own reason for like pulling it out and editing it, but like Burgess was still a devout Catholic. And so this was a film banned by the Catholic church. This is a film that like Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael and all these people were like, this is morally depraved it was picketed like you know this is a movie that people went like how dare you show this movie which is so funny because like it is a very catholic message the idea of free will and forgiveness and like punishment there's a fucking priest in the movie that is absolutely correct yeah it's like is like one and then the book too and why burgess started growing a lot of uh resentment towards kubrick is he felt like he would go on talk shows and answer interview questions. He would like literally get called on talk shows and he'd have to appear. So I, I'm actually not saying like Kubrick is, I, I think Burgess is, is definitely putting a lot of his anger into a bucket that isn't even paying attention to him at all. Um, but Burgess would, uh, would try to defend it as a religious message and a, and a, and, a, and, and, and has a lot of text to that. And he would end up on talk shows with like, you know, priests and bishops and things like that. And he, these articles that would just be like, you're a, you're Satan. And you put de- literally a devil movie into it. And he's like, no, 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 <laughs> like this is, this is about what we all believe. And he kept trying to like defend it from all these people that were just like, they were the Fox news and the, like, they're not actually interested in like introspection and like, how does this relate to the, you know, texts of my faith? They're just, they're just, the, the way that they bond their community together and get their donations is it's a, based around finding a new witch to burn. Finding it, a new witch, right? A hundred percent. And so yeah. that's why Burgess had because he felt like Kubrick wasn't going on the talk shows to defend it because Kubrick went to go make another movie. Like, but that's where his resentment eventually of Kubrick came from because he felt like Kubrick made this movie and then refused to talk about it, and he was quote-unquote, left to defend it to all of the religious people who thought he was an evil person. And Kubrick was, like, you know, sort of social with the press before this, but, like, this is around when Kubrick was, like, actually, it's not going to do any good. And then for the rest of his career, I wouldn't say he's reclusive, but for the rest of his career, he he didn't really talk to the press as much. He had some very Um, limited, there's a very, like, lengthy, I think in, like, 1985, maybe 1989, he does with Gene Siskel about his full career retrospective and like you know gene cisco was pretty harsh on him in clockwork orange and i i didn't write down some of the answers unfortunately but you should seek it out he was just kind of like yeah it's a social satire like i think you know he, he wasn't he wasn't interested in debating the merits of his film um and he didn't seem to you know he definitely didn't have the sense of like how dare you sir criticism was like who cares but let so this movie was huge we talked about it I messaged you when I when I did the box office adjustment for inflation, 
This movie made $121 million in 1971 money. Justin for inflation is about $800 million. Uh, this movie was one of the top five box office movies in 1971. And it was only the second movie ever to this day released as an X rating that was uh, th- initially released as an X rating that was nominated for Best Picture and other Academy Awards. This movie was huge. Like, well, on every level, it was kind of like the Dark Knight of its day where it made all this fucking money and then, but also got all this critical acclaim and got nominated for like all these awards. Like, it was, it was huge. It's so funny that that is the case. And why I said it was funny is the case is because when I found this movie, it felt like a secret thing that I think, I think that's the yeah. power of this movie. Like if we're talking about the dorm room stuff, that is the power of this movie today. When you find this movie and you're 17 and you have that, I didn't know they could make movies like this, like revelation, stuff like that. It seems like you have found one of the most forbidden secret, dangerous movies of all time. Like that's what it yeah. felt like finding this movie even more than Brazil even more than some of these other movies. And then, like, you go and go, oh, yeah, I guess my dad saw it because they probably watched it in fucking high school because everyone in the goddamn world saw this movie. Like, (laughs) So I've got actually two arguments for why I think this is a college dorm room movie. And there's definitely more, but the two core core kind of arguments. Um, The first one is that I think a lot of men worship auteur theory in a way that's really gross. Um, And Stanley Kubrick is... Stanley Kubrick is like Christopher Nolan. Like, it's so easy to tell their movies, like, visually. Yeah. You could just tell. You watch ten, You watch a GIF of one of their movies and not see any actors yeah. and still know that it's one of their movies. Like, it just pa- has Paul Thomas Anderson, too, especially. Like, I mean, he's he's known for basically having a, a Kubrickian phase that starts with There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Yeah. And then he kind of shifts back and forth between the Altman, Altman, Altman and phase, Kubrick, too. Yeah. Like, Inherent Vice is an Altman movie. Um, Licorice Pizza, Altman. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, the, the the worship of the auteur theory is definitely something I don't, I, we might come back to that at some point. Um, the second one is the thing you're specifically talking about, which is that, like, the dorm room classic is that I think when a lot of people are young, they either have very restrictive uh, filmic diets because their parents don't want them watch as much. Yep. Or they're like me and they watched whatever they want because yeah. they had a cool older brother who showed them Clockwork Orange when they were 15 and it didn't matter. Yeah. There's kind of two two classes, uh, broad classes, let's say. Regardless of what class you were in, this movie is on that list of like movies your parents don't want you to watch, uh, movies that are, um, you know, this is, this is shocking, this is startling. And then... I don't know if it's, I don't know how to generalize on this point, but like generally speaking, a lot of young people don't want to watch old movies. In high school, I didn't run into this problem very much with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as it wasn't black and white, like my friends would watch movies from the 60s. This is a movie that like you can show to an audience that is young and it's just keeps moving and it keeps giving you like an hour of propulsive violence for like a long time. Violence and sex. Um, for a long time. Yeah. And that sort of, like, verboten quality is, like, immediately rewarded because it's a man sitting in a, a bar, well, a milk bar, um, but a man sitting in a milk bar with his gangsters looking cool with this awesome synth Wendy Carlos score, yeah. which um, we recently talked about Wendy Carlos in an episode for about two seconds, but, like, Wendy Carlos is the reason that I think this movie is cool, to be honest, yeah. more than Kubrick. Um 
the the synth score here. It's great. Just, it's incredible. Do it's, you know? Do you know who he uh, originally wanted? No, Tangerine Dream. No, uh, Enrico Mor- <laughs> Enrico Morricone. I uh, can see him doing. So he good work here. he called uh, Leone and said, "Hey." can i would like i know you work with him a lot would love to get him for this movie i'm working on and leone said sorry he's in the middle right now of working on ducky sucker with me he's not available uh that turned out to be a complete lie leone did not want to let morricone be do a kubrick movie because he thought he would lose his main composer guy to kubrick who was obviously this huge thing morricone to this day still talks about his biggest regret is that leone did that to him and he wasn't able to work with kubrick that's so funny. And Leone was like both like a hilarious, like uh comical, massive, massive fat guy who was just like loved to pull little pranks. And he was also like a petty little asshole. Oh like, yeah. He was, he was both of those. I mean we talked a lot about Leone when we did that that month. He is absolutely a petty asshole with He's both a little a lovable little stinker yeah. and also like a just real piece of work, right? I just, I just imagine him being like, oh yeah, Morricone give you oh sorry, he's writing he's writing something for this movie that we're doing. I'm sorry. Yeah, he said he'd love to, but he's super busy. <laughs> Two years later, what? <laughs> it's also so funny because like now with Instagram and shit, like he probably in the way that like I'm not saying you think Kubrick, Kubrick would be like, hey, hashtag make a new movie. <laughs> could really use I that good, think... good, bad, the ugly vibe. I, I'm not saying those two would talk. I'm yeah. saying like eight, everybody's agent is in contact with each other 24-7. Like there's like Instagram and LinkedIn and everybody's got a cell phone out with them at all times. Yeah. Like Kubrick would have been like just to his agent, like get me Morricone. Like he wouldn't have had to work through Leona. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, but the one I, I that would have been interesting. Um, I really like. Yeah, the score is amazing. Seven, I mean, in to that opening scene, the reason it works so well is not necessarily even be like obviously the shot is amazing and the 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 blank stare on Malcolm McDowell's face is amazing, but that like heavy synth lean in, it feels like you're entering another world, and that wouldn't happen without the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the 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 Wendy Carlos score is also, I think, because okay, so. A lot of people say like if you want your sci-fi movie to age well, use classical music because they'll if they're if they're listening to it five hundred years later now they'll be listening to it you know yeah. five hundred years again. Um, pretty good instinct. I think that that is helps guide the like Moog synthesizer score here that Wendy Carlos had to do genuine like to to do she had to genuinely like take apart Beethoven to be able to make it work in this this uh, these format. Um, like, cause there were so many limited, I'm not like a expert on, on any mu- music in any regard, but there's like limited channels that you can use on these synthesizers and back in the day. So like she had to be like very selective about how the pieces needed to fit together because only a certain number could be playing, um, simultaneously. Um, just a technical, technical Marvel work that Wendy Carlos did throughout the seventies and, 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 um, into the, into the eighties, um, but uh, that score is the reason I love this movie. The synthesizer score that like leans into just proper classical music that leans back into synthesizer yeah. score and then wraps back around itself in an ironic way once that music becomes poisonous to Alex. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So, so, so amazing. I, I think you're right, though. I think like 
this movie, when you put it on, especially like the new 4K restoration, I mean, you can show this in it. Uh, I do think like one of the great like um, ultimate like movie levelers, especially for movies that look this gorgeous, is that you can, if you have a good Blu-ray or a 4K copy of whatever movie, like there's no such thing as old movies anymore, right? Like because you're not watching a shitty old VHS. Like if you have a good print, you can convince most people. And not that I'm trying to like trick people in my life like my kids, but I don't have to do this like this movie's old. It's like it looks as good as anything else. It's sometimes better than yeah. that they're watching. So like it, it's the black and white stuff that's still. Sometimes. I mean, I would have never gotten into Kurosawa and such if Criterion had not been releasing these crisp DVDs um, of his movies, right? Like, if I had to have watched um, muddy, cloudy transfers of Kurosawa movies in 2004 or five, I would have not made it through them. I would have been like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, it's hilarious to me that I watched Lawrence of Arabia on a VHS on a 13-inch Commodore monitor in my parents' basement, like... <laughs> Like, cannot think and of now you words. can like there is almost definitely a theater playing in a Minneapolis 70 millimeter that is Lord. playing it in 70 millimeter this year every quarter. almost definitely yeah um so i want to talk about two more things i think it's going to be heavy theme uh, uh and there's going to be half hour on the other side of the musical break but i'm but i'm fine with that i i want to talk about the other theme that i really took it away from this time this way and uh, then i want to talk about some of the I think the 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 2023 reframing of like this movie from a cultural perspective or a younger film generation perspective. Um, so the one thing that this that like again this isn't necessarily in what Kubrick was going for, um, or specifically what Burgess was going for. But one thing I was really struck, and I think I was only struck by this reading the book and. So, you know, part of the reason that Burgess used the uh, the slang is because it felt very alienating um, when he was in Russia or wherever he was in to hear a bunch of young people talk in a slang that he really didn't understand at all. It was like it's like they're constructing a new language that I'm not part of. And I think a lot of us have had that experience both with like you know, your parents making fun of you for saying like the bomb or something like that when you're a kid or just like even now, Peter, you and myself and Ryan will sometimes like say like so, like we'll use like kid slang and as a, as kind of a joke, recognizing like it's it's a little bit silly, but it's also fun to, to use as like how this is. And like one of the things that Burgess was kind of getting at a little bit was like how um like almost literalizing the concept of like, we don't understand these kids. Like a lot of people say we don't understand kids or youth culture. Part of the reason that the slang and the way they talk is supposed to be so alienating is because you're literally not supposed to understand what these people are saying. And that is even harsher in the book when you don't have uh, Malcolm McDowell saying things and you're not softening it a little bit for movie audiences. And one of the things that can't come came through so clear in the book that I kind of even forgot was in the movie. Cause like, I think Alex and the adults in the movie, uh, and this may be just my bias against like heavy British accents or something like that. But like, yes, Alex and his droogs use slang, but it's not that. And when he's talking to his parents, like it's it's a degree of difference in the way that they speak uh saying horror show or stuff like that when you read the book 
it is in sometimes almost indecipherable what they're saying. And you don't hear the first adult speak until like five or six chapters in. And then all of a sudden the adults are written just as like, oh, I have an adult talking to Alex and it's just it's just normal words. Like I understand all of it. It's it's easy to understand. And it really is kind of literalizing that concept of like these people legitimately do not understand what young people are saying. And like that is a message that resonates for me like right now. Like when we live in a culture that like there's such a large contingent of people who are like, oh, these stupid Parkland kids, they don't know what they're talking about. Or like the Greta Thunbergs of the world or like all these things of like these kids who want unions and jobs and like to treat other people with respect. Like, let's just go like that, that kind of feeling of like adults being completely alienated from kids and like just not understanding them is like, and again, I'm sure this is, it's a hundred percent always been the case. It's why they all thought that like Elvis Presley was, you know, giving girls like, fucking massive gusher orgasms all the time through, through his <laughs> evil witch powers or whatever else it is. But like, you know, that, that, that it's almost a satire of like a, from the perception of uh, like, it, it's like a, it's like a fake moral panic movie where it's making fun of like, Hey, adults who don't understand kids, this is what that would actually look like. <laughs> like you just don't want to listen to kids. That's different than like, literally not being able to understand them and that's what this is almost parroting a little bit yeah yeah that's it's absolutely true and the the thing that i forgot about the first half of the movie versus the second half of the movie um is that the first half of the movie is so grim and aggressive yeah it's very easy to forget that it's there's jokes in there yeah um like i think during the first half like the fact that Alex has con- a consensual three-way with two women is, like, the only funny thing that happens. Yeah. Um, that you, the audience feels like they're allowed to laugh at. There's other jokes in there that I think are funny, but that's, you know, besides the point. The second also, half really quickly all these that. little lines that are hilarious, yeah. and, like, you have to, you have to see the social satire right on yeah. its nose, otherwise you're gonna be like, what are they, <laughs> like, what? Why, why? Like, why are they cracking a joke right now? Like, you have to take it in the context of social satire. It just doesn't work. And, like, yeah, like, it is a movie about, like, hmm, (laughs) perhaps, perhaps I've misunderstood the children. Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's the children that are wrong. Yeah, it, it is that a lot. And, like, it's so much clearer in the book, too, just because, like, you are almost put in the perspective of an adult that can't understand while you're reading this book. Because, like I said, it was helpful to me to have read the dialogue like um, uh, Malcolm McDowell, but it was like it was still very challenging. Like it, it, it's a pretty brisk read and it's a good book, but it was still like okay. Like thank God I've seen this movie and I can do this because I, I like it's so funny to me that like that like uh, Stanley Kubrick's wife picked up this book and read it and loved it. Uh, uh, not because it's funny that a woman could read her like a book, but I just can't imagine anyone picking this up and being like, without the context of the movie, being like, I get what's going on here. <laughs> like, it's also it's also like if Stanley had picked it up cold, would he have done what he did with a thousand books, which is he reads the first fifty pages and throws it against the wall? Yeah, like he did this. He did this for movies he adapted, yeah. right? Like, 
uh, would he have ever come back to, to Clockwork Orange yeah. um, if he had read it instead of having his wife dig deeper into the material and, and be like, vouch for it, right? Well, it's just like, without the movie, I, I like it's very hard. Uh, I, and again, I've never done it the other way. It's, it's literally impossible for me to do it the other way. Um, but uh, You would need to be ludovico into. I would. <laughs> um, the last thing I want to talk about is a little bit like... We know people that have not watched this movie because it is a it's it especially the first half as you know it's a very brutal movie there is uh there is multiple rape scenes there is rape scenes that I think on some level could be treated as a joke I don't think the movie is actually treating them as a joke but like the characters in the movie are absolutely uh treating well we can talk a little bit about that when we go through the scenes um, and like you said, there is a cultural takeaway in the same way that we talked about with Fight Club and other movies of Scarface and some other movies like this, where the aesthetic and the image and the fact that Malcolm McDowell is actually like a cool guy can sometimes like take on a larger than life cultural imprint for the movie. And... I think that, again, I'm not saying anyone needs to like this movie or not compare it, but what I was interested in finding, what I found a lot of is a lot of people that were like, oh, yeah, this was kind of like the Joker of its day. And I'm I'm not trying to call it a specific, like, review. I saw that in a few different places, and I was, like, annoyed by that. And I was annoyed by that because if you think this movie is, like, edgy for the sake of being edgy, it's not that movie. Also... I would posit one is directed by uh, Stanley Kubrick, who is one of the probably one of the best visual directors of all time. The other is directed by Todd Phillips, who did Road Trip, um, and it it that movie just borrows other people's aesthetic to somewhat shitty effect. And also, the big difference that I feel like is the real part that bothered me the most, if the part one. Joker is annoying because Joker is a movie about how what if the Joker was right and it was society's <laughs> fault. There, like, there is no interpretation of this movie, I think, where you can say the point of this movie is that Alex is the good guy and the right guy. Uh, you can say that society is part of the problem in this movie, but I don't think you would anyone... Yeah, with the, with anyone engaging in good faith. Anyone engaging in good faith could say like, "Alex is the secret good guy of, of yeah. a Clockwork Orange," and like that is the part that like really kind of stuck with me because like if you watch a Clockwork Orange and go, "Oh yeah, look at that hero," yeah, he, <laughs> he did some things that were culturally unpopular, like the Joker, but like you know, he had a really good point. Like, what's his point? Like he, like obviously the Joker's point is stupid. And poorly presented. It's not fucking Taxi Driver or anything like that. Um, You know, but like, is Alex's point that he's just a selfish asshole who wants to commit violence and and have sex? Like, he doesn't have a perspective. He is all id. He doesn't have a perspective is that he has no future. Yeah. um, And he feels like taking these these rebellions, this, yes, this id animal animal brain... Like a lizard brain, yeah. uh, f- uh, 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 pursuits into the darkness, right? Are that is, um, yeah. 
that 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 is the point of existence yeah. for him because yeah. there's no alternative point of existence. There's no philosophy that Alex yeah. brings out on. In fact, the movie introduces you to a a priest spitting on his own lip and 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 running through a fire and brimstone speech. And that priest who has aesthetically very bad, yeah. Um, the looks got no. He's got no fricking frickin' drip. Yeah. Um. His hairline's pulling back. Yeah. Like he he looks he's like any no pudding. I believe <laughs> is what they said back. Up, up, uh, he's getting. <laughs> I'm gonna round. I'm gonna round up to zero pudding. <laughs> yeah, zero pudding, which is good because technically, which is good. That's that's the job. Them's, them, that's them's the, the berries, as they say. That's the gig, bud. Yeah, that's the gig. Um, that guy hey, is hey, actually uh, ethically quick, correct. Hold on, really quickly, like I I know this isn't probably how they get priests, but I do think like if they're like did the resume on like LinkedIn, it would be problematic a little bit. Like you know, low pay. Uh, you know, basically you have to take an oath for life. Not able to use your penis anymore <laughs> for your for yourself for other things like that is we own that like is someone like is there an HR at the Vatican <laughs> I don't think you can do that <laughs> you like, can genuinely be fired as a priest for having consensual sex with a woman yeah like so you're saying if I go home at night and jack off in the shower I could get fired. <laughs> and I have to confess my I have to tell you my confess my sins I do at home. This feels like this feels like a little bit the work life balance of being a priest is very challenging. Yeah. Well you go home and you hit your thigh with a ruler every time you think about a boob. Yeah. We like to have um, you know, fun can... in the office. Sometimes we fake do the transubstantiation and we go psych and then we do it later um you know what does the catholic church think is gonna happen if a priest is allowed to go date what do they what does the catholic church think precisely is going to happen i mean if you've ever heard have you ever heard a priest talk about it they are so they're so funny because they're like i don't want to date i'm so busy (laughs) serving the lord i wouldn't have time to i'm glad they don't let me date wait okay Okay, bud. Uh, did you did you get clockwork orange somewhere? There? A little bit. Yeah, a little, little bit. bit. They show they show priests. Uh, you've got mail <laughs> until they throw up. They're like, oh, romance, <laughs> love. <laughs> uh, they play Barry Manilow as the background yeah. music, like my Celine Dion. Don't don't take this out on Barry Manilow. He didn't do anything but want us to love. <laughs> yeah, Barry Va- Barry Mon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Father Fagan. Yeah, we're, sorry. We're gonna. <laughs> uh, you you only got two more weeks of seminary. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I I uh, I uh, I think that there's a pretty um, close corollary that the Catholic Church could could closely study, which is that like. Lutherans are basically Catholics. Yeah. Like, there's a few different religions that are basically Catholics, uh, and they're except for they're allowed to marry. Yeah, let them fuck. Yeah, pay attention to the fact let, that you let um, deacons fuck. get married. Let them. Well, no, they don't let deacons get married. <laughs> well, deacons are allowed to be married. They're allowed to be married. Accurately. If your wife dies and you're a deacon, you're not allowed to get. You're remarried. cut off. Yeah, that's true. 
You're mourning twice at your wife's funeral. <laughs> Whatever you do, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you're not allowed to jack off either. So you're like, well, that's great. You know what? Honestly, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm also really bummed. That's the last orgasm I'm ever going to have. Like, She was like, I want you to move on to not jacking off at all also. I want you to be done with that also. <laughs> I'm literally, that's it. I might as well kill myself because I am not allowed to ever have sex again. Thank imagine you. getting cut off. Imagine getting cut off from all of that, like after a, a happy, successful marriage. Yeah, with kids. Yeah, and then they're like, mm, "No, no, dude. Yeah, you're, you're like, done." Hey, Dad, can you go out there and date again? Sorry, son. You know how sometimes I sit next to the priest, and then on occasional <laughs> Sundays, that means this penis is staying with me, but not for me. Just it's gonna stay around me. <laughs> Imagine if I was up there during Sunday Mass, uh, handing him the thing that puts out candles, um, <laughs> and I was thinking about tits that time. Don't you think that would be disrespectful? Yeah. If I was the, thinking the, like, about big, the, like three floppy, weeks, <laughs> undulating breasts. It's more like if, like, what if three weeks later? <laughs> I uh, saw a nice girl and smiled at her. Don't you think I should go to hell for that? Don't you think that would kind of soil all the hard work I did during mass? <laughs> Do you remember all, that, all the good hang, all the good hang time I had with that other virgin? <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember when that guy, when we were both wearing those robes in front of the big table, he's like took a sip out of something, little glass, little goblet he had, and he handed it to me. And I wiped it with a napkin <laughs> and set it down. You're saying that that guy with those kind of responsibilities should go on a date and try to get over his dead wife? Like, what kind of son did I raise? I would just hate for, I would just hate for forming a loving relationship with a woman to distract me from, yeah. distract me from my cup wiping. Yeah. Sorry, bud. I'm gonna be lonely, except. Those times I get to wring out the little dishcloth during that washing the hands part. Like, it's going to be me and the dishcloth together forever. Uh, what a weird organization. Okay. Uh, I said some positive things about Catholicism somewhat at the beginning. So clearly, yeah. you know, the universe needs to this balance is, the scale. But to like, be fair, this is pro-clergy, anti-church. So you're going to have to parse that one out yourself if you're offended by this. Yeah. Um... So I, but I think, you know, that, that is the point, like this idea of like, so p there's a lot of people that are like the Joker was right. Fucking Walter White was right. Like Thanos was right. You're an idiot. You're dumb. Stupid idea. Like you're blah, blah, blah. But like, there is no Alex DeLarge was right. Like, so comparing it to like that, or like it was an edgelord provoc uh, provocator who like made this movie is, like, the part that annoys me quite a lot. Because, like, again, you don't have to like this movie. You don't even have to watch this movie. It's a tough watch. Its themes are, like, like you said, it's not, like, so important to watch to understand that these things are bad or where society can end up. There's a lot of movies that, that tell the story very well. It's visually interesting. It's well acted. It's, a, in my opinion, a very good movie. Like, you don't have any responsibility to like this movie, but please don't compare it to The Joker. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Like, you are missing so many points. I think the nicest thing you could say about Alex is that he has drip. He does have drip. 
Uh, yeah. He he sings a really good song um, that made uh, Gene Kelly uh, avoid never talk to Malcolm McDowell. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran into him at a party. Malcolm McDowell said hi, and he stared at him daggers apparently and walked away. Uh, and he was angry angry about this uh, anytime anyone ever asked it ever. I heard Gene Kelly was an asshole in real life, so yeah. yeah I, I, as far as I know, Malcolm McDowell is a sweetie pie. I have no idea yeah. if that's true. I have no idea if it's true either. He seems very sweet in interviews, and he seems very excited about the career he's had doing 15 movies a year, and seven of them are horror movies. <laughs> I don't have anything else to talk about at the broad level. Do you want to get into the rest of this movie, Peter? Yeah, let's do it. Droog. Uh, yeah, let's. So this movie's divided into three. Where the fuck did you go? He's back, my droogs. Um, you, so, you, you like that one? You're a mean one, Mr. Droog? Yeah, you're a mean one, Mr. Droog. So this. <laughs> Same lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> After that, just copy paste. You're a nasty wasty. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you're a really. You you're, really are a heel. Yeah. Can't say something nice, don't say it at all, but you are a heel, Alex DeLarge. <laughs> uh, yes, this movie's divided into three sections. The book is as well. The first section is all about how Alex and his drooks um, like to do crimes. These aren't Big the crime fun guys. crimes. There's some crimes I can get behind. These are crimes I'm generally uh, almost exclusively opposed to. They include... But are not limited to uh, beating up unhoused people under a bridge. Um, Peter, look, don't want to make, make this uh, podcast too political. I am 100% against that in all situations. Yeah, I uh, if I had to take a, a firm line in the, in the sand, no. um, I, would, I would say uh, assaulting homeless people just for existing is no good. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, yeah, but him and his droogs, like, you kind of see a little bit of their life. They hang out at this milk bar at the beginning, and Alex is the youngest of them, but is also their leader. He's kind of the most vicious, the most intelligent. We're seeing the movie from his perspective. It's it's narrating everything he's thinking, um, and, like, he chastises one of his uh, friends for making fun of a woman that was singing at a bar because he also has an appreciation of... Uh, music, more specifically classic music, and then very specifically Ludwig van Beethoven is his favorite. And this lady was about to sing, and so he, like, smacks, uh, I forget which one it is, Pug. Uh, with his oh, cane. it's Dim. Dim, yeah. With his, uh, with his uh, cane. 
But after they're done, <laughs> yeah. But he is he's narrating um, the fact of like how they spend their time. Like they go to milk bars and they commit crimes. And like first they go um, and they like want to do the old in and out. So they like having sex. They don't seem to care if it's consensual. Uh, they uh, they like beating up people and doing a little bit of the old ultra violence, which is yeah. Yeah, it's how they how they spend their time. Um, it's they, you know what's really cool, Aaron. Yeah, like this. They say this is a dystopian movie. It's a dystopian movie. Yeah. Okay. Um, kind of cool that in the future we've just like beaten lactose intolerance. It's just gone. Yeah. People are out. People. Everybody's out all night drinking. Milk. You kind of got that. Like, yeah, it's like the at least you know Mussolini made the trains run on time or whatever. <laughs> Like, at least we've beaten, like, lactate is injected into you at birth. Like, the first thing they do is they get 5G into you. And then, once the 5G <laughs> injection takes, you can go to a milk bar. <laughs> you know how there's, like, uh, hormonal birth control? Oh, there's, yeah. like, uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> hormonal um, uh, cow <laughs> enzymes that you can absorb. Yeah. Why not, Peter? It's the future. Um, I mean, I'm sure, here's the thing, though, like, I assume if one of them shits their pants, they're out of the game. Like, they are out. That's, like, they that's, probably... That's the Darwinian... Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like, that is, Calling. like, it's like the evolution that happens. Like, eventually, people grow to not be lactose intolerant, because in a dystopian future with droogs and gangs... The droogs that shit their pants don't last in the drinks. And if, mm. if you don't go to the milk bar, you can't be part of the gang. So it just naturally, you know, mm. evolves out of the gene pool, I think. Have we talked about how the first, the last thing I want before a night of going out, doing nice things with nice people. Yeah. Is to drink a bunch big, of glasses glass of big old milk. Big glass of milk. <laughs> I do think, like, that is the most Jokerish part about this movie. Like, the idea that, you know... This guy's crazy. Society's crazy. They're making milk bars, for God's sakes. <laughs> I know it's supposed Can to be some sort of symbol for the fact that Alex is is young and drinking milk. He's supposed to be a you know a baby committing violence, whatever. Well, and they, get right the, they get him right out of the right out of the plastic tits, right? It's like right right out of the. That's that's probably it's just a really horny society. Like let's only drink milk out of mammary glands ideally even if they're plastic and artificial that is that's the my ideal state um yeah i'm sure they're like can i get like a white russian just milk one percent two percent whole you, <laughs> you want to skim milk go to the health store next door you <laughs> wuss they they do go to like a regular bar later that just looks like any any brewery in the midwest yeah. um and for a minute, I was like, oh, I guess they, they drink beer, too. Okay. They're not all milk. Yeah. They're not all, all hopped up. They're not, like, hardcore milk people. Kubrick probably forgot. <laughs> Noted lazy director. Kubrick just moved into the set that he built for the milk bar. Uh, in case I forget, David Prowse, who uh, played plays the person who helps uh, carry around. Uh, why am I forgetting his name? What the, the author? The author. Um, Pat, uh, Patrick McGee. Yeah, when he's when he's in a wheelchair. Um, David Prowse, who also played like the physical body of Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies, 
it was very challenging for him, even though he's like a, a big imposing guy to carry the wheelchair. And I guess he told Stanley Kubrick, like, look, I know you're not exactly known as one take Stanley Kubrick, but can we do this in as few as possible? And apparently, like, you know, the story is like people were like, oh, like, because like Stanley Kubrick has a, has a reputation sometimes that doesn't quite match because he apparently thought that was very funny and said, I'll try my best to keep it to it as little takes as possible. But like people around the cast were like, do you just make fun of Stanley Kubrick for being a perfectionist? Like you're going to get fired. And obviously instead he laughed and said, that seems very reasonable. I'll do my best. But, yeah. 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 It's, it's a good story. I think I think it kind of gets balanced out. Right. Like because obviously anybody that's seen any footage from that one Kubrick documentary where they're, it kind of goes through, it's a career retrospective yeah. um, and they show a bunch of behind the scenes stuff for the shining. And he's just like making Shelley Duvall's life very miserable. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> like anybody that's seen that footage immediately is like, has an image firmly branded in their brain, but the image was actually a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Like I said, uh, Stanley Kubrick, complicated individual. He um he had a reason for torturing Shelley Duvall. He was he didn't just walk around torturing people and was mean to people on set for no reason. Is that a good thing to do? Absolutely not. You should not torture and harass and abuse your lead actress because you think it will give her a better performance. But I do think it's easy to look at that and go, oh, this guy was an abusive asshole on his sets, and that was or that def- he was an arbitrary abuser. Yeah, like that was he definitely was at least once <laughs> very much so, but like yeah. he he wasn't like uh he wasn't like you know again, he had a, a very misguided deluded reason for doing that. Um but he wasn't just Well, yeah, he also had to like make the movie at some point, so he had to stop. Yeah. Just be like, yeah, I guess two takes is fine here. I got to do 60 with um with Alex the in the um eye prying machine <laughs> oh yeah he did get uh yeah so anyways so um probably one of the more famous scenes of this movie especially with its um sing in the rain is they go to this author's house who wife answered the door and uh they rape her and they rape her in front of him they kick him to the floor and while they're raping him um alex sings singing in the rain like and that was an ad lib. They said, you know, hey, try to kind of show how, you know, he thought it seemed to uh, an in initial takes when he was when when they were doing it. He was like, this kind of seems a little bit like you are angry and intense. So how do we downplay it to kind of show your evil in in the way that like can kind of show like you this is all fun and games to you. Um, and so he had the idea of singing a song. That was the only song he knew by heart, and uh, Stanley Kubrick quickly went and bought the rights to the song before there was before anyone knew why it was going to be in the movie, which was a thing you could do in 1971, I guess. Uh, oh, I, I need the rights to it for this song. Here you go, or for this movie. Um, like Stanley Kubrick wants the rights, he must be making a musical himself, which is also why what do you it's. Do with it's it? Uh, I was going to say it was also why the actual song is featured over the end credits, because he did have the rights to use the song yeah, yeah. for this movie. But, like, the thing about that scene that is is absolutely brutal that really struck me seeing it, especially this time, is, like, and this actually was true, like, looking back. I think the lasting image of that scene with me has always been, yes, there's nudity in it, 
it is not like a canon thing of like let's use a rape scene to show titillation like her husband's face who is like laying on the ground and like violently shaking while he's being forced to watch this contrasted with her, the violence of her being like torn, literally her clothes torn off and cut off and stuff like that. While she is contrasted with like Malcolm McDowell's carefree singing and dancing around is like an incredibly brutal harrowing scene like i'm not saying you need to be like oh well as long as it's brutal and harrowing i'm fine watching the scene but i do think it is a rape scene that um like something like the nightingale or something like that is at least there for somewhat of a reason that that works to emphasize a very specific evil in the movie that you need to understand about Alex. Yeah, this is not just, um, this is not an incel who's taking it out on women or whatever. This is a man whose specific psychopathy is like inflicting pain outward. Yeah. Um, he wants to take something that is, he wants to take something that's beautiful and destroy it. He wants to take something um that is pure and impurify it he wants to take and i mean that like yeah these people had a happy marriage and then over the course of the movie we see that or by the time we return to this this happy marriage she has died and he's in a wheelchair and he has grown bitter with rage yeah um like he is he has completely like soiled their lives with this act of violence obviously like you know it Mm -hmm. reflects Anthony Burgess was not there when his wife was was attacked, um, but it reflects the experience that he had, where like he kind of lost his wife through the fact that she she did not heal from yeah. the incident. Um, and him and as a Catholic, he thought he needed to forgive them and how challenging that was, and that's obviously the the author's uh, situation here. You say, okay, well he's been cured and he's been abused by the state. Can I forgive him if he's no longer? the same person or he's grown past the person that did this now i as a non-religious person would have a very different probably take on whether you need to do any of that stuff i would say absolutely not you don't need to forgive shit like um for something like that but that's that is the take of the movie yeah 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 yeah. um but yeah and also what's interesting about the scene is that you see the beginnings of the sexual assault and then it cuts away before um and, and in my memory it was much like longer and more explicit well it's it, I, I the reason i noted the nightingale specifically even though um there you know I, it's a little different is that like it, the reaction shots and some of the and the tone makes it feel more explicit and brutal than it is this is definitely more explicit uh and brutal than the nightingale but its imagery and its lasting effect is I think, like, based on the fact that it is treated with the deplorable, inhuman act that it's meant to be be treated. It, it's a, it's the, like, the concept of, like, someone walking away from this and, like, happily singing, sing, like, singing in the rain and, like, thinking, oh, man, that scene was funny when he was doing that, like, uh, respectfully, please go see a doctor if that is your takeaway from this, because like you are the idea that like the 
the the you know the husband literally just being on the floor just recognizing like what's happening here and the like the pain screams of her as she like they literally like just take a scissors and cut off her clothes and stuff like that it is like it is it is, it is rough it's a it's a rough watch and like the singing in the rain doesn't minimize it it shows how dehumanizing such a experiences uh and i can also understand why gene kelly would go great fucking biggest movie of the year <laughs> ruin my little song <laughs> yeah um so to kind of before we we move along i yeah. have an in, in, inappropriate comment to make in terms great. of timing which is that i love this apartment and i love the exterior of oh the me too and it's we do come back it's to this like, apartment you definitely could have saved it peter so it wasn't so abrupt from a timing situation but yes, <laughs> I also uh, wanted wanted to to move move us along a little bit so we didn't we didn't dwell too much and and um maybe overstep. Um Yeah. The apartment is gorgeous. He's got like multiple like walls that are just all books. It's all like natural wood and he has these it has all these like comforting spaces like these pods that you can like sleep in. Yeah. Amazing like, future aesthetic that I would like to purchase. Yeah, it's like it's like part like you know Scandinavian IKEA kind of like clean lines, clean natural wood, uh, you know, but obviously done more um, fancy, more yeah. high end. And then other part like mid century modern, like really like just like bright light and clean, and lots of um, lots of like natural light is allowed in. Like it's an awesome. The house is so gorgeous. It's great. Um, yeah, so they, um, they keep committing crimes, but eventually there is a little bit of pushback around, like, the fact that Alex smacked, um, Dim and, like, tried to take a little bit of control of the group. So they're like, we see Alex kind of live his life. He goes to record shops, his parents, he has no connection with them. He has a pet bow constrictor. He brings home two, uh, two ladies from the record shop to have consensual sex with. Um, and he goes and then he's out for another night on the town with the, with the droogs. But this time they're like, we don't like that. You think you're in charge of this fucking group. Like, you know, not, not cool. And there's a little bit of a power fight where at first he seems humble and like, he's going to give up. And then they're walking along this like man-made lake or man-made like reservoir. And he decides this is time to use violence to show him that he is still in charge. And so he, beats two of them with a cane and pushes them into the water and then they go out to the bar the non-milk bar just a bar because uh, if you if you insult the leader you don't get milk you get a beer milk <laughs> is for when the group is coalescing and we're all doing good otherwise you get a beer uh which is lesser in this world i think the milk really fucks you up and the beer is just like you know yeah that's the dystopia it's just a beer yeah. <laughs> um so they <laughs> Um, and he, but then he's like very obviously Malcolm McDowell's like you know cheer up we're all friends now you know and they're just sitting there like bleeding and angry, uh, and so they go to do another B and E at uh, another lady's house, um, with their masks and everything else, um, and Alex starts to kind of torture this this woman this dance instructor, uh, with a penis statue like some sort of modern art. But little does he know that that they know that this lady's going to call the police. And when he tries to escape, uh, his droogs are going to knock him out and leave him for the police to find as their revenge and to get him out of the group. So that kind of ends like the first act of this movie. Like we see about it's 
for for a movie that's two hours and thirty minutes long, it's like forty minutes of Drukin, and then like forty minutes of jail, and like an hour and ten minutes of post jail. Like I think people only think of the Drukin part of this. Movie, I, I think so right? too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It was the, shorter the, the, than I remembered too. I would have said it was half and half, and it is like not even a third and two thirds. Yeah. Exactly. Um. Only so much Drukin. You can so show. much Drugan. Yeah. Something I want to highlight in the first act of the movie, a big inspiration for Kubrick was Funeral Parade of Roses, which yep. we covered. Yeah, we did. Um, the William Tell sequence is like a direct homage dash ripoff to a sex sequence in Funeral Parade of Roses. Um, the um, that happens in Fast Forward. Um, Kubrick just loved this, loved this scene. Um, and then some of the editing, um, notably during the attack and, and the murder of the the woman at the well, the health farm. Yeah, health farm. Yeah, I don't. I, Sorry, yeah, I don't think she's a dance instructor, like, but she has like the ballet. She's doing ballet. I think people go there like on like wellness retreats. Okay, sure. Like I think it's like a big beautiful estate, and rich women come out there to like work out. And currently, there's only one person and her cats there, and she's like you know heads up classes or whatever. Anyways, um, during her attack, there's some really interesting editing where they're cutting to like art all around them. Yeah. And there's a piece of art during her scream. They cut to like an, a piece of art that's like a series of like mouth, like uh, a painting of a series of mouths all yeah. kind of coalescing, and like that is straight up like funeral parade of roses, like yeah snappy pop editing um yeah. and like kubrick directly credited funeral parade of roses for doing some inspiration here i do want to also touch on the william tell sex scene really quickly yeah because it's very clearly indicating that it's not that alex is a um incel or something you can't pick up women and so he resorts to rape not that that would be any more forgivable it's that he has a power fantasy that he enacts with the rape, or he wants to impress his guys. Or he just um, is so amoral that it's just a fun thing to do for him. Like Yeah. And and then but like he is a charming young man. He can go pick up two beautiful young women, take them back to his house on a school day and, and have sex with them. Um that sequence is actually really funny where like he like is on he like he like is having sex with one and the other one is like starting to put her clothes back on so he'll like get out of bed he'll like finish with one and then get out of bed and undress the other one and then the one that's not being occupied will <laughs> Well so funny. part part of the thing that's very funny about that scene is it's the only scene that's one like uh that they only did one take for because it's a it's it's uh sped up considerably um and it was one 28 minute take and like uh, Malcolm McDowell talks about like some of those things about like that are very funny about him like oh this girl's getting bored I guess I'm going to go move over and do that again it was making Stanley Kubrick very angry because he could essentially do whatever he wanted because they couldn't cut or he would have to start the whole thing over so he was just him and the there was like a ton of improv- improvisation that he thought was funny and it was for 28 minutes uh and and Kubrick by the end was like, okay, like, stop, like, trying to shout, like, to please stop doing those things. And Malcolm McDowell was doing functionally whatever he wanted because Kubrick couldn't interrupt the scene without having to start the whole goddamn thing over. So, yeah. And it all comes together. Like, McDowell was completely correct. It's it's super funny. Like, it, I, I think it almost follows the rule of threes where, yeah. like, 
he's un- he undresses the one, and at first you're like, oh, he's a bit of a player. And the second yeah. time it happens, you're like, oh, okay, this isn't believable. And then when he comes back to the first girl that he already did this to, yeah. it starts to be, like, really, yeah. really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so the second part is that he goes to jail. He is committed for his crimes uh, because uh, the lady died uh, when he was escaping. He pushed her to the ground, or he hit her with the he no, hit he hit her, with her the dick hit her with a penis. Yeah, which he was trying to joke, but it killed her. So uh, the, even a family friend is like, "You're going away for murder?" Wow! Like, and he's laughing at him. Like, well, really fucked up this time. Like, you got caught for murder. That's gonna be tough. So he's. He's in jail and he's he like part of the reason Malcolm McDowell is so great in this is that like he is like a happy, charming guy in most cases. And that's only because like he is, you know, like we were saying, there's no philosophy underneath. There's nothing deeper. He is just like a like if I need to survive in this way, I'm going to give everyone smiles. Like he doesn't have emotions he's a sociopath like he wants to get out and he's going to try to figure out the best way out obviously he hates prison and there's a few times that he really hates being in there he he makes friends with the chaplain and keeps trying to be like i'm going to be the best prisoner i can so they let me out early and that's when he finds out that there is something that's going on in the prison that is allowing people to get out within six weeks uh and he volunteers for that um uh um, yeah, the sense that, like, the, the the priest has that conversation, right, at this point where he's like, I don't want to volunteer you for this, like, yeah. this, he says the line, when a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. Yeah, um, at, at this point, they don't know what it is, just a thing that cures them, the, what, the Gustavo method? The Ludovico Ludovico method, method. yeah. Yeah, um, and it's supposed to be sort of like Nazi mad science, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's not supposed to be genuine. It's supposed to be like Nazi mad science. It is also kind of like... This is a part of the movie that I, I find very troubling on the second watch. The first watch, I didn't really pick up on any of this. But the Ludovico technique, in Kubrick, uh, in Kubrick terms, he's kind of talking about how, like, a lot of modern psychology, he thinks, could just mask current behavior, but it doesn't actually, like, change the person un- underneath, yeah. right? Which can be true. Um, however, like, I think that, like, um, while I don't endorse the Ludovico brainwashing technique, um, this idea that, like, psychological and con- classical conditioning is inherently evil because it's denying people their baser natures is like very weird because like our entire life is a series of like i did this and a bad thing happened and it discouraged me or i did this yeah and a bad thing happened but it wasn't that bad or it didn't really you know it didn't really sink in me so i kept doing it um like our life is a series of of you know, we get a, we, we perform an activity, we're given some sort of response from the world, and we internalize it back. Like, the idea that, like, on second watch, all of a sudden, this was getting weirder for me, because I'm like, aren't we all just kind of a series of, like, we get cla- we get trained over time to have disgusts and fears, and, and um, our tastes over time get more sensitive. Like, for example... When I watched Clockwork Orange when I was 16, I wasn't, like, jacking off to any of the sexual violence, but, like, I was, like, the the way that I was accessing it was more, um, 
vague yeah. more from a distance. But as an adult, my sense of empathy is more developed because I've had more experience with it. And I'm like, this is way more hard to watch than when I'm 32 than when I'm 16. Right? Yeah. Like, aren't we just a series of like, like, you know, you're, you're, you, you learn things and you change, you learn things and you change. I don't necessarily think like the idea of like bringing psychology in to change people's base natures affects their sense of free will. Like there's a massive conversation happening in the background, but like, yeah, I think, I, I think you're right because what they're doing. So in the movie, what this does is it, essentially plasters over this person's base nature as a shortcut to actual rehabilitation, right? You're not actually, like, making people understand empathy and teaching them better ways. It's a shortcut to say, and they say this in the movie and it's in the book too, we don't have enough money to keep all these prisoners. There's so many prisoners because of we're not doing anything to support a society without poverty and with opportunity and everything else. So we got to figure out a way to get these fucking criminals back on the street or else we're just going to have to start killing them. Like that that's kind of like the the message here. It's like so we oh, don't he also need says that... we need more space for political prisoners because yeah. this is a, this is like a dystopian society that's like there's still some sense of democracy, but it's about to get way worse. Yeah, we need to get our have place for our enemies and we get all these fucking murderers and rapists in here like how do we get them back out on the street like <laughs> you know so there's there's that part of it it's like real psychology working on yourself real rehabilitation takes time it takes time if you just like don't want to feel sad as much or like reframe the way you approach complex problems and it takes time if like you have a natural tendency towards anger or violence or any of these other things and this is a shortcut method designed for evil purposes as opposed to rehabilitation. So, like, that part of it is true, and I can take the movie and the book at its face value. If we're talking about, like, the method here, do I think there's something inherently – and this does get sticky. Like, do I think there's something inherently wrong with showing someone violent imagery that is not fun? Right. The whole point is that he equated fun with or violence with fun. He didn't have to see the after effects of that of marriage breaking apart. He 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 didn't have to see the after effects of the of the guy he kicks in the alleyway, right? He gets to kick him and move. Like seeing the blood pour down his face or seeing that person struggle to walk or like all the other violent things that they're theoretically showing. Like the cost of war. It's why how many fucking governments, including our own, have tried to censor pictures of war and stuff like that? Like because it's like we don't want we want you to see the troops with their gun, you know, pulling a kid out of like the bad guy's hands. We don't want to show when we've, you know, killed tons of kids through fucking a napalm attack and stuff like that. So, like, do I think in a vacuum there's something inherently wrong with showing someone violent imagery to show the cost of violence and then combine with some sort of conditioning where you get a shot that makes you feel sick? Is that real brainwashing? Like, if we were like, let's try that on someone? I actually think the answer is is no. But I don't think the movie is trying to say, like, this is a real brainwashing technique that you're supposed to be uh, upset against. I think it is like a, um, hey, like, here's what they're doing and why. And this has that effect of functionally not teaching you anything and brainwashing him. And that's bad. Uh, and yeah. then, and then, and then another group tries to use him for their own. Like 
it's it's more about like the society that's using this essentially philosophically less guy like as a pawn like he just wants to just do things that make him happy he has nothing and you have like one society saying i don't know let's use a method of guinea pigs so we can get violent criminals back on the street because we're not doing anything else with them another one was like hey let's use this guy who they let a violent criminal back on the street and took away his free will to get our political power so that we can start impo- like that's why the scene of him in the hospital later on with him just like where the fucking like governor is talking to him and he's just like chomping on his food with a big goofy dumb smile on his face is so great because it's like he doesn't care like he you you guys are like like debating the philosophy of this and then trying to like he just he does not care like he's happy he gets to chomp food and imagine sex now like he's, yeah he's, yeah he's a nothing like and he's getting all this attention yeah from people who want him to become a political pawn right yeah yeah and and, and i i think like you know like another interesting thing about this is that <clears throat> like classical conditioning like operant conditioning um pavlovian conditioning like this this sort of stuff like try Sending your dog, a much simpler creature than a human in terms of intellect, try sending your dog to a training course for the weekend. And then um, when the person tells you what you need to do to maintain that training, just going, mm, yada, yada, that's fine. You did all the work, so we're yeah. good. So we're trained. They, they I'm going to say these words and the dog's going to do the things. They're basically making Alex functional function long enough that in, in, with this new um, this new treatment that he can like get through a parole board and get out for a while but like the underlying the underlying like thing that he has the underlying problem still exists right that's the point and and it's they've just made yeah. it so that he um has more fear and 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 nausea uh, committed to 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 the um well yeah and there's also the fact i mean it doesn't work right like something happens and he becomes like it's temporary they're literally like if you look at it a vacuum and like when that's one is the dog training fades yeah dogs are way simpler than animals than yeah yeah like if you just go and say hey like forget about whether we should have prisons or what those look like and stuff like that if you're like hey should a society reintroduce uh, murdering rapists back into society um, after they've done this little like I don't know let's give this a whirl and then so they can they can do political prisoners <laughs> like no the answer is no you shouldn't do that like so uh, I mean that's that's what it's more about than like like there's there's no one that's like this is a permanent method they're testing it on him and then they just let him out when they're done <laughs> they do one little day of experiments like it's like who, you yeah know. and 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 i don't know if he hadn't tried to kill himself i don't know if he would have broken that conditioning i have no idea right they had to do literal brain surgery to save his life when he jumped out of that window right yeah um but like the point here is that the the ludovico treatment isn't being offered to prisoners at for a quick release because the state ultimately doesn't care about these people getting any better. Yeah. And the state, this all the state cares about is that they don't immediately uh, uh, have recidivism right back into jails, which maybe it works from that perspective. And two, they need to look like they're doing something about the crime because conservative governments, and they make it very clear this is like a conservative 
It's a conservative government that has like jackboot thugs out in the yeah. street beating people, and they think that that's a replacement for social change. Um, conservative governments um, love to have a big cure all. They say if we just do this, yeah. crime will go down 30%, and then it never works because conservative governments don't fucking work. The point here is that they think that they can kick all these people out on the street and then go, our tough on crime, uh, our tough on crime approach absolutely works. Uh, all those bleeding heart liberals didn't know what they were fucking talking about. Trying to get us to do social reforms. That that's so expensive. You wanna you wanna run up the tax bill that much? That's insane. And and then they end up with a political pawn that they're able to flip to their advantage um, after he's not successful as a political pawn for the liberal side. I mean, it's, I mean, the image is great. Like, the image of, like, his eyelids being held open, which is obviously a real thing. Like, the person in the movie putting drops in his eyes is the doctor responsible to make sure he doesn't get injured or his eyes don't get dry, even though his, his cornea was... Uh, uh, Corona was cut a couple times. That's the problem. It's like, how do you show brainwashing in a way that you go, this is unethical? Like, I don't know if showing violent imagery and trying to make someone disgusted with it is inherently unethical. I don't think it's a six week cure all so you can bring your political prisoners into the jail. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, they're looking for quick fixes. Conservatives are always looking for quick fixes and cheap fixes because they want to put a band aid on something as opposed to actually fixing the underlying problems right um, yep. alex's mom they alex's mom and dad take on a lodger alex's mom and dad are still going to their factory jobs and working you know 12 plus hour shifts um to take care of themselves like that the underlying problems have not changed that like this yep. kid has no fucking attention and no moral compass and all he has is the ability to play the mama's boy very sweetly for like uh, yeah, thirty minutes a day he sees his parents. Yeah, so they let him out. They do a test. They show that he, when someone calls him names, he doesn't punch him. Feels like you could fake your way through that test, but um, do but you want to get out of prison? Yeah, don't hit this guy. Don't hit. Hey, this guy's gonna call you quite a lot of names. If you don't hit him, you get out of prison forever. <laughs> no problem. Do you uh, want one beating now or beatings for the next fifteen years? But the method really does work. And so, like, the, the, the longest act is the final act. He gets out of prison. He goes home. His parents are like, oh, we didn't know you were going to get out of jail. Oh, I guess we did read about it in the papers this morning. Um, yeah, so we have another guy living in your room, and he's really nice, and he's paid for the room. He kind of finds out that, like, there is a, like, even though this is just a guy that only wants to pursue his, his things that give him pleasure and has is a sociopath uh, against anyone else, he is learning there's a cost to violence, like, in some ways, right? Like, his parents really don't want him. He doesn't have any other friends. He isn't able to do any of the things that he wants to be able to do. So like he gets, you know, revenge keeps getting taken, uh, lead a violent life. And like, you are going to have violence returned to you. Like this is very literal. And that all the people for the most part that he does violence to, he runs into again in the course of a day who do violence back to him, whether it's his old droogs or the, uh, the unhoused person that lives under the bridge Eventually, uh, his old droogs, because he's been in jail for two years, are cops. And they're like, yeah, well, it was a natural. We're, 
we were violent youth and the police needs violent thugs to keep uh, some order within society. So easy to do. They, they say that explicitly in the book. Uh, and they bring him out to a field to kill him or leave him for dead. Um, and he escapes and uh, goes into a familiar looking home that uh, says home. And it does this great like uh, mat shot of the author writing and a knock at the door. But instead of uh, uh, the author's wife, it's a giant David Prowse in like Elvis Costello <laughs> outfit who goes and answers the door. And it's because, yeah, he is in a he, the author's in a wheelchair. David Prowse is like his butler, bodyguard, handler, and butler. butler. Yeah, um, it sounds like he cooks and cleans for him, but also uh, yeah. they maybe they didn't invent wheelchair ramps in 1971, they, so they, he carries them down the stairs. There's a lot of lifting of the wheelchair. Um, he doesn't uh, he have like days where he's like, "This isn't an arm day. I can't carry it." A hundred. Did you see those man. guns? It was always arm day. It's very funny too because like. I was like, David Prowse, David Prowse, where did they know him? I'm like, that's what's under Darth Vader? <laughs> like, And he thought he was Darth Vader the entire oh, time yeah. they were shooting Star Wars. Yeah, probably just the first movie. I think he probably figured yeah. it out by Empire Strikes no. Back. No. Hey, I imagine he saw Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. he's like, yeah, it'd be funny if he didn't realize it. Until I never watch my work. <laughs> I, I i don't want to get too precious about it you know i just like to be in it on the scene giving yeah. my vocal performance <laughs> like one of the most brutal things is that like no one told him till he went and saw star wars that he wasn't going to be the voice of darth vader like literally like george lucas just wanted me for my body <laughs> <laughs> can you though in george lucas's defense Great body. George Lucas looks like George Lucas and David Prowse looks like David Prowse. Do you want to tell that guy that his voice got cut uh, from the movie? Uh, yeah, David. Um, um David? Um, you, like, I, I don't know why you thought we were going to have a gentle Englishman do this voice. Because uh, obviously that's not going to work. So, uh, but please don't hit me. Come back for the sequels. Um, David, I, I, uh... I, 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 have you ever heard of um, uh, it's a little thing that they do in theater it's called um, a goose suit um, <laughs> <laughs> we goose them a little we're just gonna goose them a little we goose them a little um, <laughs> they, so yeah so uh, Alex immediately realizes why he recognizes everything um, but they wore their mask that night so he's confident that, that this guy won't get it but then immediately upon a bath, sings Singing in the Rain, because it's the only song that he knows. And, and of course, the author's like, oh, I know where I know this guy. This rapist murderer who I read about in the papers. I remember uh, you from the worst night of my life. The worst night of my life. I know where I know you. Um, and there's this, like, great, the, the kind of, like, passive-aggressive, like, eating spaghetti scene is so, like, intense and brutal. But, like, yeah, he's like, I have friends coming over. And we're going to help you. But then he gets his revenge. This guy has a great, like, fucking just intense anger face. Just like the, um, who's the guy from uh, from Breaking Bad? I think it, like, rivals. Oh, like Mike Ehrmantraut? No, no, no. Who's the guy who, like, can't talk by the end? Who blows oh, up? oh, oh. Uh, is it Hector Salamanca? It's yeah. one of the Salamancas. Yeah, yeah. Who just, like, has that intense, just, like, uh, stare. Um, but he, he, he knows that Ludwig van Beethoven will make him, 
drive him crazy too in the same way that he read it in the newspaper read in the newspaper because that was one of the things that were like hey this is unfair they played all these uh they played all this classical music over all the violent images so now he hates the music that he loved that doesn't seem very fair does it um and 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 people are like okay well great so he has an actual punishment because he's gonna get right out of prison and be fine uh his revenge is to put these speakers up towards the room he's staying in and play Ludwig van beethoven as loud as he can causing alex to commit suicide or attempt to commit suicide he jumps out of the um the window um they really did because it's a first person perspective they took a insanely expensive camera wrapped in protective stuff and threw it out that window six times which is just an amazing story and stanley kubrick assumed he would break one to two cameras and was amazed at how uh durable i forget the exact type of camera he used was that they threw out the window he was like we'll go through a couple probably and they they didn't it survived every time and he was very impressed with the durability of the camera that's awesome yeah. but, but uh so their goal that's why he, so the author brings in um some journalists and their goal is to interview alex and then have alex while he's staying with them um alex uh dies by suicide um and so he becomes a political pawn for their they want to launch political attacks on the government so like yeah this government sucks a lot but they're also like not only giving into like the petty revenge here but they're also being like we're gonna use your we're gonna manipulate the way you were abused Mm -hmm. Um, to make you into a political talking point for us to help us win this election. Yeah, and he's like... And, a different type of evil, right? Yeah, and the Alex stuff is so funny. Like, like why you said it becomes a comedy, because he's like, okay, great. Yeah. He's like, great, sure, you guys are going to take care of me, i got a place to live, I'm not going to be out of the street where I'm defenseless, sure. And then when he commits suicide, or attempts to commit suicide, and he survives, he ends up in the hospital, then all the papers say something else, like hey, this government is terrible. Like, they've driven this poor man. He almost, he couldn't listen to his music and he almost attempted to kill himself. His parents come to the hospital to be like, oh, hey, we've made a terrible mistake too. He's not interested in them. Um, But eventually the governor, who they initially did the demonstration that he was cured, uh, comes and has a one-on-one talk with him. He's like, look, um, glad you're okay. Uh... Uh, he, you know, glad you're okay. Just to let you know that you are causing a little bit of trouble for us in the paper. So I, we don't want to lose our election. So it'd be great is if we say, yep, this was bad that we did this, but you agree that it kind of helped and be, Bob, I'll give you a job. We'll give you money. And throughout this scene, this is such a funny scene because, and this was apparently ad-libbed by uh, Malcolm McDowell as well. He drops his fork and then the governor says, you need some help. And so he starts feeding Alex, and every bite, Alex does, like, the most, like, smacking his lips like a child, just so happy that this man has to feed him, that he's not paying attention to everything he's saying, and trying to see how much, like, bigger his mouth can get while this guy is forced to, like, play airplane with him and feed him. And he's like, sure, I'll agree to all that stuff. Absolutely. I'm happy to be your friend. Good to be friends with you, buddy. Like, and while he's feeding him. And then he's like, sure, I'll agree. I'll be your friend. Give me money. We're all good. The governor calls the press in. Um, and then he just kind of like, he 
just um, instead of like while everyone's taking his picture, he just imagines people having sex while p- uh, pilgrims are watching. <laughs> I mean, it's like he's like I was cured, all right, which is also the last line of the Americanized or original Americanized version of the book, and it's that yeah. idea of like sure, like whatever. It, what it reminds me of is like the the um, burn after reading, like J- like what the fuck did we learn? Like it has a little bit of that quality, which I find very funny. It's, like we as the it's audience, a sort of movie where the people that are most central to the story know seem to know the least what's happening. Yes, yeah, and he doesn't even seem to care what's happened here. All he knows is that like he can imagine people having sex and enjoy that and now people are giving him money and like like yeah i i do imagine he doesn't have to he's not going to go out and be, you know beat people senseless because he's he's getting his kick somewhere else like in a weird way he's sort of uh, he's sort of establishing the ending of the book because like it's yep. headed in that direction where it's like you get the sense that alex is like probably going to live like a bourgeois existence from here and he'll commit violence in ways that are socially acceptable yep a hundred percent it's a it's a great ending, uh, but like again, the the point isn't that like uh, you as an audience member haven't learned anything. I want to be clear. The point is that Alex hasn't learned anything, and no one in this movie actually cares about Alex. They are just going which whatever way the the wind goes as well. So um, it is definitely the takeaway is not that Alex was right. Um, the takeaway was that. Alex didn't care about any of this stuff because he has like literally he's just being passed around from person to person. Yeah. And and them telling him like, we're going to do this. What do you think about this? Don't you think it's unfair? And he's like, sure. Like, does that help me in any way? If it does, I'm all for it. Like, great. I, uh, to kind of like walk us into final thoughts. Yeah. Um, Really quickly, something that I uh, love in this movie that we barely touched on is that there's a few different points where you get to see the inside of Alex's mind. So when he's jacking off, he um, early in the movie, he's jacking off to Ludwig Van and thinking about, yeah, um, thinking about all the horrific acts of violence that can pop into his head. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's a barn burning down, a sexual assault, a yeah. murder. He's got vampire teeth. Like just all the all of his most depraved, um, you know. Uh, psychop- psychopathic kind of fantasies, right? Yeah. Um, there's a really, really funny one in the prison <laughs> where he's he's imagining the Bible and they show a long shot of Jesus and you're like, oh, he's thinking about the Bible. That's so nice. And then the camera pans over and he's imagining himself <laughs> as one of the executioners of Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Because yeah. <laughs> they don't... And then after that, they show him like, you know... Uh, sleeping with sleeping with uh you know handmaids and 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 cutting throats in the old testament but they start yeah. with they start with him reading the new testament and being taken aback by um t- being taken aback by like oh i would have loved to be at the crucifixion and then you're like alex are you are you saying that you see a model in christ and he's like i would have loved to be at the crucifixion doing the crucifixion i know that the- that's that that part is again that but that that's representative of, of like what the whole movie is, right? Like yeah. some, even though the priest is well-meaning, like they're like, here, read this. I think this will affect you. And he's like, yeah, I like that idea of killing that guy. <laughs> really good. Like real horror show. Like this is some nice violent stuff. Like he's like, he is a, he, everyone, a town, like 
fundamentally, everyone attempts to humanize him and doesn't recognize that he's a sociopath, like, somewhat incapable of of rehabilitation and humanization, at least at the shallow surface level that everyone is attempting to do. Yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, I, I think that's true. And to, like, jump off of that, and the, the reason I think this movie is, like, stickier than I originally thought it was and why the second watch actually kind of opened my head up a little bit, which is that, like, it's both a movie about how we need to make actual structural changes and not try and find these like these like inhuman patches to to undo human behavior but it's also it's also a movie about how you know out there there's little roving gangs of youths that are gonna come and (laughs) murder you and your family Uh, we have to figure out what to do about them um and so the movie kind of embraces its it, it through its satire it becomes a little muddy for me like it embraces its its um it, 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 the, a argument from its detractors while also like um trying to build an overall point about uh empathy um and how much forgiveness do we offer people and I think that's all like you know well and good like it's a it, movies are allowed to be kind of uh, movies like this are particularly allowed to be um, say multiple things and be kind of over the map, but um, the ultimate point of this movie lands right the central mm-hmm. point of the movie lands which is that like um, you can't cure human nature with these these quick fixes. You yep. can't torture people into being different people. You have to actually like make them understand some sense of empathy. You have to involve change. The prison system was not going to change him. The Ludovico treatment is not going to fundamentally change him. They actually make a joke about the Ludovico treatment where he's like trying to choke um, the lodger at his parents' house. Oh, he yeah. literally puts his hands up and then it, they cu- they have to come down like he's a fucking robot in a in a sci-fi movie who like has has like a conflict of of, of his rule set where he's like uh, must defend my master but cannot hurt humans. Um, like he's a uh, it's like a 1950s monster movie. Yeah, or something, yeah. right. It's like the um, Asimov's it's, it's like a joke. third law of robotics. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a it's a joke, right? He can kill it's, himself. Point. Or he yeah. can try to kill himself, but Yeah. yeah. It's within his, his rule set. Um but it's a movie that is like oddly like I feel like usually by the time we get to the end of the episode I've got a good grasp on on all the little nooks and crannies of what, what a movie is doing, but like why is his parole uh, not his parole officer, his like guidance counselor essentially a sex pest? why is like is that just a weird joke a weird dark joke in a movie that's very dark um like the why uh why is the author who's a genuine figure of empathy turned into a monster at the end that rivals you know alex in specific ways why are journalists on the left side seen as just as brazen as on uh as the totalitarians that they 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 also were willing to bend the rules to to um break the rules to to get a political point across um so like that while the movie is like the one point that i come back to circular circular thing is Mm -hmm. like um i don't think this movie is easy to parse out i don't think that it's a movie that can easily be boxed in 
Um, and usually by the end of time we finish these episodes, I'm like, I got a good grasp on it. I think me and the director were we're seeing eye to eye. Uh, I don't think I don't think Stanley and I are speaking quite the same language, but I want to know whatever the fuck weird Droog speak Stanley is speaking. I yeah. want to watch the movie again someday to maybe get a little closer. Yeah, this one, you know, going back to it for a long time, there's always the chance that like you end up watching it and go, "Yep, I mean, great movie." I think I'm done with this one, and I. I don't think I'm done with this one. I'll probably watch this one again in my life. It's not something I'm going to watch on a yearly basis like some other Kubrick movies. But like like saying, oh man, it's a little bit about this and it's a little bit about this and it's and it's doing this thing. I, I think it's doing a lot of interesting things. And I think the even somehow I got a little bit like brainwashed about like, oh, it's the edgy, it's the edgelord, rapey, murder Breaking Bad anti-hero movie, and it's really not that at all. Even if, again, some of the aesthetic of the movie has been incorporated into, wouldn't it be cool if we dressed like these bad guys? That doesn't mean that, like, the morality and the messaging and the theming of the movie matches a kind of um, antipathy to to violence or or stuff like that. So, yeah, this was a really good one to come back to. I'm glad we did it. Uh, We definitely have to do more Kubrick um, at some point in the near future. You just watched The Killing for the first time. Yeah. It's a good movie, Peter. It's a good movie. I'm not, I'm not like a completionist about directors for some reason. Yeah. I think also... He's he's only got like nine movies. Yeah, but I like knowing that I've got Barry Lyndon to watch someday when I need it. That's That's a good one, too. Also, did... Also, was I going to love Barry Lyndon when I was 16? I'd love it now. Uh, you probably would love it now. I've been meaning to rewatch it because I was like, this is good when I was 20. And I bet you it would be my favorite because everyone says it'll be my favorite. Um, so I, I've, I've been meaning to rewatch. But anyways, we got one more. We've done seven. We have one more left. And for one more, buy two. Or wait, buy one, get one free. We're doing Boondock Saints, which is... The worst Dormer movie poster movie of all time, maybe. Um, yeah. Peter liked it at one point. I saw it when it came out. I actually found the old DVD cover that like was an import that I bought and was like, "Look at this fucking shit!" Like I've never seen this. I it took me a while to find it. Uh, I never liked it. What I am excited to talk about is Overnight, the documentary. On the making of the movie and the unmaking of the director, Troy Duffy, of Boondock Saints. Um, I'm going to warn you. Uh, we were we love to watch. I think we norm, like we definitely have our villains, but I think we have a general humanistic uh, uh, bent. I, I don't think we'll have a lot of positive things to say about... Uh, the movie, we might have some fun, like, oh, this is interesting to see 20 years later. I don't know. I really haven't seen it in 22 years. I can tell you that having rewatched Overnight for the first time, I would have a lot of very disparaging things to say about an actual human being for the way that he has behaved. So, depending on your tolerance for that, just a little, <laughs> a little future spoiler warning. Um, uh, Troy Duffy is a huge asshole, and I don't like him very much. Uh, oh and ryan boland's gonna join us yeah yes and ryan will be here who's someone who i watched uh boondock saints with for the first time when i was like whatever 12 and uh 13 and uh both of us liked it for a period of time and then turned on it 
Yeah, that'll be yeah, be very interesting to hear that that uh, that perception perspective yeah. also. All right, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm gonna go get my droog on, which in this case means sleep, because I can make up words too, Anthony Burgess. I'm gonna get my droop on, like a droopy dog. Oh, droopy, you're gonna get a non boner. Mm. <laughs> I'm gonna get an old droopy, you're like an old deacon. Good night. <laughs>